history, feminism, politics, culture, anything else we fancy talking about. Um, I'm Emma London. I'm Charlotte Lydia Riley. And this is our Christmas special, our second Christmas special. Very exciting. We're feeling very festive when we record this. Yes, it's a bit pre-recorded, but yes. (laughs) I'm still feeling very festive. Yeah. I feel like we should have mulled wine or something. Yeah, at least a bit of gingerbread. Yes. But what is the topic for today? So, we were thinking about what we could do a special, a Christmas special on, because I'm sure, as you all know, last year our Christmas special was on Mad Men, um, and how uh, kind of love for, it's not a guilty pleasure, guilty pleasures don't exist, but also Mad Men is prestige television, right? But yeah. this kind of um, thinking about TV that we love and how it fits into our general outlook. And we were thinking about something else we could do, and we decided that... Um, maybe a similar series that falls has almost a similar place in British uh, kind of TV history as Mad Men does in America is The Crown yeah so we're going to talk about The Crown today yes and we've done a little bit of revision you've just finished watching the second season yes I've re-watched a bit of the first season um so we'll we'll see where that gets us mine's mine's less revision and more cramming because I only started watching The Crown this summer mm. um, and have watched two series in I've been very very careful we were only allowed to watch one at a time oh really yes so with other things particularly things where there are lot, like lots and lots of them like Mad Men if you start watching it it's six series long mm. um, you can you know you, you can allow yourself to watch two at once or maybe even three but The Crown there is only two series I wanted us to watch one at a time and they're quite long they're an hour long yeah um, this is how I feel about Patrick Hamilton books like mm. other books by authors who are no longer with us. Yes, yeah, yeah. you can't just <laughs> you have binge. To, you have to pace them out. Yeah, definitely. It's like one every three years. Yeah, this is my <laughs> beloved uh, Laurie Colwyn. I did not realise had died when I started reading her novels. Oh, yeah. And I did that thing when you read a book you love and you just buy everything by them. Mm. And I bought everything I could find and like zoomed through them and then was like, when's her next book coming out? And then discovered that wasn't going to happen. So how do you feel about The Crown then? Do you think it's the best <laughs> TV you've ever seen? I do not. <laughs> but I... So I only started watching it this summer because I was really resistant to it. Mm. Loads of people have told me I should watch it. Um, and lots of different sorts of people. So historian friends yeah. had, had told me that I should watch it, for example. Historians of Britain or historians of other Interestingly, things? Uh, one of them was uh, Dr. Carol Moskowitz, who is at the University of St. Louis. Mm. Um, it's St. Louis, Missouri. And she's a historian of Africa and empire. Oh, yeah. Which is interesting, given one of the themes that we thought we might talk about with The Crown today. But yeah. she said she thought I should watch it. Um, quite a few historians, actually, had said I should watch it. And then a bunch of just other people. Everyone seemed to love it. Yeah. And I really was resistant to watching it, partly because I thought it was basically Downton Abbey. Yeah, which, which I, you haven't watched. Which I haven't watched, and which I have no intention of watching. Um, and also because... I don't like watching history programmes. So, actually, like, period dramas is a bit different, right? But I don't mm. really like watching history documentaries. I don't really like watching history programmes. I don't, honestly, don't read a lot of history books outside of my work. <laughs> um, and I was a bit concerned that this might feel a bit homeworky. Okay. So I didn't watch it. When did you, did you watch it as soon as it came out? I think I w- probably watched the, yeah, around then, um... 
And I wouldn't be able to tell you when that was. It was the first season must have been last year, wasn't mm, it? And then the second so. season in the spring or yeah. something. The second season I think was this year because I think that might have been part of what sparked me to watch it. Was the yeah. second season when it popped up on Netflix? Because as we have discovered before, I have a very high tolerance for poor TV. Mm-hmm. So I watch EastEnders, for example. Like, I use TV to mm-hmm. not think. See, I do as well. But so I've I... watched Downton Abbey. I haven't watched all of the seasons. I gave up quite early on. But it's, you know, it's I, mm-hmm. I can deal with that. I watch, like, one of my favourite things to do when I'm ill is to just watch old episodes of Lewis on ITV3. Or... <laughs> See, I definitely, I definitely do that, but I have quite specific criteria for what I use. So basically I like to watch, if I'm feeling very ill and sad, I watch either, like, Friends or Buffy. Okay. Um, and I'm a big fan of, like, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. That's mm. a good un- unwindy sort of... T- basically, I, I quite often, if I want to unwind, watch, like, light, frothy American okay comedy not that Buffy I is I probably have watched quite a lot of British stuff actually I do there was some British stuff. might be because I'm not British yes exactly I was just thinking that like <laughs> maybe it's, it's it's a slightly more <laughs> I do believe that everyone kills everyone else in Oxford of course and that's uh, well that it's just normal for East End landlord pub landlords to end up in prison about mm-hmm. three times a year I mean that's, that's what happens in that East End basically is true and I I love Endeavour which oh, is yeah, the yeah. other the thing yeah. I really love Endeavour um, yeah, Endeavour is brilliant and which is both historic and British so by all rights I shouldn't be watching that yeah, whatsoever like, and I really like it it's like a murkier version of The Crown mm. I suppose yeah lots of good clothes and, and tall posh men but I um, I'm also in, in two minds about The Crown I really love Claire Foy mm, and I think that's too. one of the reasons I, I started watching oh, it she's wonderful um, she is brilliant so she stars as the Queen yep Vanessa well, Kirby is she stars as the princess to start with. Yes, yeah, yes, yeah. Not to not to spoiler not the to crown, spoiler, but this princess um, Elizabeth, she's going to become Queen Elizabeth II. You might have heard of her. Um, yeah, <laughs> Vanessa Kirby, who is Princess Margaret, I think is also very good. Yeah. Um, and yeah, actually, it is. It's one of those British TV shows, isn't it, which just has like a run of people in it. Like every yeah. time someone pops up, and you're like, oh god, that's. There's a bit of a madman overlap as well. Jared yeah. Harris. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Who is, whose name I can't remember in Mad Men, but he's the British guy. Um, Price, Lane Price. Lane Price, yeah. And then becomes, uh, in doesn't become, in The Crown, is it's not one character. <laughs> <laughs> Lane Price doesn't become the King of England. In The Crown, he plays um, Elizabeth's father. Yeah. It also has John Lithgow in it mm. as Churchill. And I was reading, um, I think it was an, an interview, like a piece in Harper's about The Crown, and it talked about they flagged the idea of the controversy of an American playing Churchill, and I didn't think of that as being a slightly controversial. I didn't think of it at all. So partly I didn't think of it as controversial because that's how acting works. You can, <laughs> in fact, play someone who is not the same as Churchill you. Churchill is not playing Churchill in this no. particular drama. <laughs> but also, um, Churchill's mother was American. Mm. And in my head, Churchill is... like I write a lot about Anglo-American relations. In my head, Churchill is... He's an American of... Ophile, right? He loves yeah. the state. So actually, John Lithgow playing him, I didn't. He's geographically even... based somewhere out in the Atlantic, isn't he? Yeah, exactly. So I didn't think of that as being even slightly problematic. He's no. very, he's very good. Yeah, he's quite true to character the way that we imagine him. I think one of the interesting things about the Crown is obviously to different to Mad. You know, in the Mad Men, it's interesting watching Mad Men because they're playing characters, fictional characters, but who are also kind of types, aren't they? So you can mm. identify particular. And within that, you can see historic tropes, like, for example, the treatment of African-Americans, like, yeah. through the different types in the office. So the kind of liberal, embarrassed, white, middle-class person, or the kind of, the person who you think is going to be racist, but actually is 
You're talking about Pete Campbell now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, the different different characters who have different reactions, and they kind of represent that. So, for example, that moment in American history, and, and how different people's reactions to race sometimes surprise you or don't fit how you think yeah, of the character yeah. or whatever. Obviously, the Crown is different because everyone's playing a real person, mm. um, and part of it. Actually, part of the thing I do find fun as a historian is both, like, spotting the historical event and topic before they happen. Yeah. So, like, something will happen. Like, I realised I didn't know the final episode was about the Profumo affair. Mm. And then Philip walks into the room where the Doctor is and he says he's called Stephen Ward. And that was the moment when I realised that's what it was going to be about. Mm. But it's also... This is the final episode of season season two. two. Yeah. Yeah. But also, it's... You know, John Lithgow is playing Churchill so he's playing like he's acting in a series of stories that have been written about Churchill but obviously for a lot of British people and Americans he's playing an image that we have of Churchill yeah and it's a difficult line not to just do a Churchill impression Mm. like he has to act as he has to be do acting as a character that's Mm. also someone we have quite a fixed idea about who Churchill is and what he and how he speaks and this sort of thing um there are moments He sounds where... a little bit too sober for me. That would be my only... Yes. I mean, having read the mass observation diaries, on mm-hmm. the wartime diaries, where they all talk about how, <laughs> how Churchill sounds very drunk on the all radio. All the time, yeah. <laughs> it's funny um, watching... Maybe Claire he'd sobered Foy... up by the... Maybe he had by post he's dried yeah. out a little bit. Um, it's funny watching Claire Foy play the Queen, um, and Matt Smith play Prince Philip, actually, but obviously Claire Foy being the main character, mm. that her accent... I think it's very, very good. She does a brilliant kind of... She's just a brilliant queen. Mm. Um, but there's moments of peaks and troughs of poshness. Yeah. And, like... It's when it's when she's on display yes. that it becomes this very brittle Yeah, voice. absolutely. She also has a really, really funny way of saying, oh, which is a posh way, oh, mm. like that noise, um, which is that slightly disdainful, like, oh, mm. I see kind of noise but I love it and like in my head now whenever I say oh I hear <laughs> oh the girl from the fence modelling herself yeah, on, on the Claire queen. Foy modelling herself on, on the, the queen. queen um so why are you in two minds about it I um I still feel like it plays into too many of the tropes around the royal family and British history mm-hmm. that I think think they might have actually set out to challenge a little bit mm. so there is this stuff I mean f- fundamentally I have a problem with the humanization of royals yes absolutely <laughs> this is because this is a really good PR job for the queen extremely right? good PR specifically job the, queen. the queen as well and I think, I think maybe Philip as well I think I mean I don't think people who watch the crown are going to believe the conspiracy theories that he killed Diana I mean the Philip thing is alarming for me because I did find myself at points within the two series, like getting a bit of a crush on Prince Philip, <laughs> and I, like that's obviously deeply problematic because everything we know about Philip from his many kind of public moments mm. is that, for example, Prince Philip is quite well known for being for saying quite a lot of racist things, for being a racist, yeah, yeah, and exactly, and this is. You know, this is always passed off in British. There is some sort of British tabloid agreement that Prince Philip is just like. You know, he's just funny. He's this brilliant, plain speaking, isn't he? Like yeah. funny, isn't he? Whereas actually, he's mostly a lot of the time the record, the sort of his public persona is both rude and racist, essentially. Mm. Yeah. And so I was very alarmed 
to discover myself developing a crush. And I feel like that is entirely because The Crown was doing a kind of PR job on him. <laughs> yeah, I, no, it definitely is. I think some of the ways in which you say that they might have been trying to push against that a bit. Like, there clearly are a lot of moments where the monarchy itself, like, not the family, but the actual structure, mm. are depicted as being, like, very staid or set or old-fashioned and there are also clearly lots of moments where we're supposed to sympathize with Elizabeth not necessarily as sort of sympathize with her because her role is very difficult but obviously that is a PR job right that Mm. that makes us think oh the queen has such a terrible difficult job Mm. which obviously she's not down a mine Mm. it's not but it is it's interesting because it does make you think about the monarchy does not necessarily seem that fun no, and I think it's also interesting how they seem to be billing her as this modernising, her and Philip as these modernising yeah. uh, influences on the monarchy, which, I mean, fair enough to some extent they have been, obviously, because they come in a specific era with specific, but they're not you know, necessarily... the TV coronation and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But they are, I mean, we both remember 1997. There mm-hmm. wasn't anything particularly modern about, no. about the royal family in 1997. They have still had all of these problems with divorces and yeah. divorcees that, you know, the rest of the world has moved up beyond. But I I particularly feel like <laughs> I have a political problem mm-hmm. with the humanisation of royals because their whole claim mm-hmm. to power mm-hmm. is based on the fact that they're not as human as the rest of us. Yes. They only govern because they've been appointed by God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you don't believe that, then they're just humans, but they believe it. <laughs> some of the um, some of the framing that's really interesting, and I think, you know, so it's going to be six series, isn't it? There's going to be 60 hours yeah. of television in the crown, and we've watched the first two, the first two series. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting is that they obviously have a sense within them of kind of the big themes they want to map out. And one of yeah. them is obviously the kind of the social contextual change. Mm. And actually, this has been flagged specifically. So like Philip winning the fight about the Televo's coronation, you know, it's depicted very much as this moment. And it's it's shown there it's supposed to be about getting the population on side, right? Mm. That, that he's worried about revolution. But it's also, there's an interesting moment. It, one of the things I found interesting is, is rethinking about this period of history through this framework. Um, because you wouldn't necessarily think that the royal family could tell you much about social change in Britain. It's the royal family. The monarchy is supposed to be unchanging. That's the point, right? Mm. But clearly social morality is a big shift in that, you know, Elizabeth's father only becomes king because his brother has to resign because he wants to marry a divorcee. Mm. Although also the kind of Nazi past is dealt with in, in, in the crown, actually explicitly. I was quite surprised, mm. actually, it came out so yeah. explicitly. Yeah. Um, and then there's a moment when... And obviously Margaret is stopped from marrying Peter Townsend because he has been divorced, but she's allowed to marry Tony, um, the photographer. Yeah. Uh, blanking on his last name, Snowden, who is, has not been divorced, but is clearly, like... He's not from royalty he's not an aristocrat and yeah. also like has this quite murky personal life where he's doing lots of it's things. It's like posh middle class but he's Yeah like, exactly yeah. and he's there's a lot of you know there's a moment where the portfolio is kind of brought to the queen and he's shagging around mm. and there's they dance delicately around the idea that he might have male as well as female partners mm. and then actually the show shows him in a threesome um, and Philip the character you know Matt Smith's character vocalises this because there's a moment in at the party that's thrown for Margaret and, and Tony where he says you know the establishment was up in arms about us getting married because Philip was not deemed a good enough match for the Queen and now Margaret is being allowed to marry this sort of random photographer. And obviously they later get divorced. Mm. 
they both have affairs during that marriage and they later get divorced. So it's just kind of within this one generation or generation and a half, two generations of going from you have to abdicate from the throne for divorce to the sister of the queen is allowed to have this kind of lifestyle. Yeah. Um, it's also interesting, I think, it's really interesting as a programme about marriage. Mm. Um, so having just finished watching the second series, and the second series is obviously quite fraught, it depicts the relationship between Philip and Elizabeth as very fraught, and within that, it's really interesting because it's explicitly several times brought up that they don't have the safety valve of divorce. Mm. They cannot get divorced. And Philip uses this to get power within the relationship because the Queen can't divorce him. Mm. And it's really complex, actually. I think the, the way that power within their relationship is depicted is incredibly complicated. Yeah. I think it, there's, there's very deep um, trails of masculinity throughout mm. the whole two seasons. Yeah. So there's a lot of, I mean, Philip in particular is sort of on show in the first season, the first few episodes, this kind of naval lieutenant mm-hmm. commander or whatever he becomes. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of rowing and there's a lot of sort of all boys together yeah. and, and yeah, what yeah. they get up to. And on his stag do, he's out with his naval friends and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it's obviously not going to be a yeah. very tidy affair. And I, that kind of continues. And it's interesting because so many of the men in that series who are depicted have a junior status in their relationships. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So clearly, I mean, it seems to me like Philip believes when he marries Princess Elizabeth that they are equals. Yeah, because but then the he's moment also, yeah. she becomes queen, mm-hmm. he, you know, yeah. falls exactly. <laughs> by the wayside. And, and the same goes for um, Lord Snowden as he becomes mm-hmm. when he marries... Yeah. Uh, Margaret, he sort of seems to think that he's got this way of circumventing the yeah. traditions and mm-hmm. stuff and that she's sort of enthralled to him, but then it actually turns out that the traditions are quite a lot stronger mm-hmm. than maybe either of them were reckoning with. But also that it's you know, it suits her. She is they have been brought up in this system mm. of princesshood. But it's also interesting, I think, and masculinity and the way that men relate to one another. So in in many ways, so there is, for example, the episode in the second series where they're talking about sending Charles to Gordonstoun. Oh, yeah. Which has, even today, so it's a co-educational private school now, which costs, I think, like, literally, like, 12 grand a term. It's (laughs) extraordinarily expensive. But um, it's co-ed now, and they don't do the physical punishments because Ofsted does not allow allow you to physically punish children in your school anymore. But it's still a school that has a really big ethos on, like, outdoors and difficult physical education and stuff. Like, Mm. it's just, it makes you into men and I suppose women uh, because it is co-ed but that deals you know very much with like Philip's upbringing and and ideas about masculinity and and you know the the clear inference that Charles is not masculine and Mm. you know and Charles did say um that he thought it was cold it's and kilts he did speak about this yeah in the past so that's interesting the relationship between Mike and Philip is interesting in terms of masculinity and male friendship yeah so Mike is a guy who is his best man and and his sort of his his second in personal age yeah or exactly yeah. and and he again he's getting divorced so he has to stop working for Philip mm. um, the other thing that I think is interesting in terms of 
uh, masculinity actually is the Queen and Prince Philip's relationship to their children. Yeah. I remember tweeting about this watching the first series that it's very clearly implied that the Queen is not sentimental, certainly about her first two children, not sentimental whatsoever. And when they go off travelling yeah. without the children, so when um, when her father is still king and she's being kind of groomed for being Queen and they get sent off to Africa. Yeah, the Commonwealth tour. The Commonwealth tour. And they get sent off, and, and she's immediately like, of course we'll go. And Philip is saying, what about the children? It's difficult for the children. And he talks about them as, his, you know, the darlings and everything. Yeah. And the Queen is very unsentimental about this. Yeah, she basically says, oh, they're too little, they won't yeah. notice. And, you know, they're not that little. No. <laughs> they will notice. Uh, interestingly, like, having read around this a bit, obviously it's very difficult to read about the royal family, right? There is very little. FOI does not apply to the royal family in Britain. It, it, it's any sources of gossip tend to be cracked down on quite quickly yeah but sort of interviews with the children um princess anne has very positive memories of her father mm. um she's a tomboy she likes horses she remembers him reading them bedtime stories every night and she's actually very hands-on for a father of that generation yeah, yeah, yeah um charles has quite a distant relationship and then the two younger children it's implied very heavily in a lot of the sort of things you read about it the queen has had a more <laughs> had more time for the two younger children. Like, that mm. was something... And I think that, again, is explicitly addressed in The Crown. There's a moment where, where Mike says that Prince Philip should get her knocked up again so she can be a mother. And this would be important somehow. Yeah. It's good for her in some way. But I think that's really interesting, the, the sort of ideas about those sorts of things. And... The, yeah, there's quite a lot of clashes in Philip's personality, I think, about mm. those, those things. And... They bring up his his own past with his own very checkered family history. Yes, his Nazi sisters. It's Nazi <laughs> sisters. Um, very cruel father, mother who's in a who is in a either in an asylum or a, a nunnery, some sort of institution. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's another reason that I have problems with the crown is actually based on that Commonwealth tour. Because mm-hmm. I see what they're trying to do there. They are trying to point out this this blatant racism. Um, so you see, they're in Kenya, as they say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so they meet with local chiefs. Mm-hmm. And Philip is very sort of disdainful. He sort of mocks one of them for wearing war medals and mm-hmm. says, oh, but I've got one of those. Where did you steal it? And yeah. this is, you know, clearly... A very senior African political yeah. Kenyan leader who has fought in the war for Britain, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, like many Africans did, many Kenyans did, and has won this medal mm-hmm. through bravery. Yeah, and is now being, you know, called a thief in front of I also everyone else, the... and they don't. Th- that is depicted as like a funny scene or like. I think... it's it kind of it's the, mm. the actual factual racism and the yeah. factual incorrectness it's yeah. never pointed out that this man must have no, actually been absolutely at war and i i thought it made him look petulant because i think it was in that it is in the moment where he's not dealing very well with this public role but yeah you're right that it doesn't at all it's never addressed i mm. also think the role of kent because there's two times that they well there's three travels because prince philip is also sent off on his own yeah by boat right and this is part of the this is another moment of masculinity they have the beard growing contest he's really yeah. excited to be back with his they naval chums pacific they go well yes and there's that, all of that stuff which is the letters to his lunch club which implies that there might have been some marital indiscretions yeah but then actually the the you know that's also kind of turned on its head because he sends the film home of him in antarctica 
and that's framed very much about him missing his children and his wife and, and there's this kind of pulling between him wanting this kind of masculine mm. rather than also having family but the other way in which um and then of course there's the moment in the second series where the queen takes it upon herself to go and visit Nakrumah mm. to stop Ghana from making trouble in the commonwealth and this you know this is it is something that happens and the dancing is something that happens you can find there are very famous photographs of the queen dancing with Nakrumah mm. and it's an important moment um later Margaret Thatcher dances with Kenneth Coander mm. uh, and there's also very famous pictures of Margaret Thatcher dancing with Kenneth Coander and I I always assumed that she had seen these pictures yeah, and she that she that, that that was it was a self she's intentionally that's around 1980 around the um mm. Salisbury talks when they're making uh Zimbabwe creating Zimbabwe yeah. I think it's I think it's in that context and I always sort of thought that was very self-conscious that Thatcher was modeling herself on the queen mm. But the earlier tour that you're talking about when they go to Africa before the Queen is the Queen and she's mm. Princess Elizabeth, I also think the role that Kenya plays there <laughs> in giving them a space, because it gives them a space of, um, it takes them away from Britain and gives them this kind of space where they can, their relationship is quite positive. They have adventures yeah. together, right? And they've they've been bickering about various things and then they go and this is all lovely. But what that's doing is, again, kind of creating the empire as this sort of, empty space yeah. for white british elites to sort out their problems in yeah and that's a really traditional view of empire right mm. that, like the empire is where you send second sons who aren't going to inherit any money they go out to the empire and they like yeah. have adventures so i think it's interesting everyone goes to africa to find themselves exactly and that's basically what they do it, it constructs empire as being a kind of play space mm. for the royals in order to do these things and the empire is used at different moments so you know ghana is a is a is a place for the Queen to demonstrate herself as a master of diplomacy and also to push back against Jackie Kennedy, yeah. undermining her publicly. Um, the South Pacific is a space in which Prince Philip can assert his masculinity and like pull away from his relationship with the Queen a little bit. Like, mm. Empire becomes this this empty tableau in which they can do what they want. So that's a great quote from Philip in the in, this, in the first season when uh, Elizabeth first mentions that that they should go on this Commonwealth tour because mm-hmm. her dad is too ill to travel. And he, he says that he's only going to be grinning like a demented ape when you cut ribbons. Mm-hmm. So he's obviously mm-hmm. in two minds about the yeah. role of royals. Is I, that maybe why he's so obsessed with the whole physical exercise thing as well? Maybe, that he needs to himself be kind of masculine. And mm. I think it's um, it's obviously... I mean, we, I think we talked about this with Mad Men as well. One of the pleasures of watching Mad Men is the just how it looks right it's the depiction of it and one of the pleasures of watching the crown is just the settings and things Mm. and the thing i mean it's interesting it is interesting watching people play real historical characters because the first time someone appears there's that moment when you're trying to work out how much they look like them yeah yeah so claire foy now that's what the queen looks like in my head (laughs) um she does look quite like her as a young woman some of them are really astonishing actually i think um i mean john lithgow really looks a lot like the elderly yeah. Churchill, but also um, yeah, Tony Snowden is Matthew Good is a really quite a quite close mm. uh, to Tony Snowden, and there are um, actually the guy who plays um, Townsend also is like physically yeah. and the Queen Mother actually yeah she looks very different similar but the other thing like the sort of settings and the the sort of historical trappings and context and things that are given to it you know it's a very expensive drama yeah but the way that they use 
the shots that they use and the way that they use costumes and setting and stuff I think is also really that's really accomplished that's really kind of well done yeah it's a very good looking piece of tv I think and it works really well there's another thing that has always struck me about it is that there's there's so much about class Mm. in it in quite invisible ways I I sort of thought about it now when I rewatched one of the first episodes Mm -hmm. where um Churchill is elected again Mm -hmm. so Attlee is out yeah and he goes to King George and they have a conversation and the king says something like well he wasn't you know Mm -hmm. he wasn't a a great sort of companionship yeah 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 which which he can have with Churchill because Churchill is is an aristocrat and I think that's quite quite interesting because we often think of that era the post-1945 Labour government mm-hmm. for example is quite a radical mm. shift in British society but clearly there's quite a lot of mm-hmm. stoppage as, it's as also, you move up. It gives you a sense as well I think quite a good sense of the breadth of who gets included within monarchy and within their social circles mm. that like it's not just the monarchy up you know obviously that it doesn't work like that you can't just have one family on their own all of these kind of connections and things so people like um phillips um mountbatten louis Mm. mountbatten like people like this who are kind of moving in and out of um moving in and out of these royal circles and also have connections with government and that it demonstrates how the kind of british monarchy and the establishment and government and church as well all fit together so like the moment when the queen talks to all of the bishops about whether she can allow margaret to marry a divorcee and stuff you see how these things are like social circles as well mm. i mean the moment in the second series where Macmillan resigns because of illness but really because he doesn't want to he can't bring himself to keep going on as prime minister and he suggests that she appoints eden and then later margaret points out you know it's basically a family friend that she's appointed and she's kind of got into trouble for this it's not yeah it's all these kind of circles um and it's interesting yeah the depiction of how those relationships work and the blurring between kind of monarchy government i mean the the sort of one of the characters i really liked who is totally fictional is the the um historian that the queen hires oh yeah to teach her right she hires someone to come and tell her about stuff because she's sad she's she's fed up she can only talk about horses and dogs whenever she meets anybody and he uh, gets her to pull out she pulls out all of her notes from when she was being taught as a child because she only learned about the constitution Mm. And she has that idea about the, um, about the two types of government, the seats of government. Oh yeah, and it's efficiency, and decorative, right? That you have the the efficiency, the efficient, and the decorative as being two elements of kind of government. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting to see how that works, or, or how the how the writers of this program want that to appear yeah. the different circles in which people are moving yeah interesting i mean that's one of the fascinating things about being a sweden britain that the queen is actually involved very hands-on in in legislation in britain the swedish king is not allowed to have an opinion Mm -hmm. he does call the government to meeting once a year i think he sort of opens the Mm -hmm. the parliamentary year well the queen doesn't just she doesn't just have an opinion she has a role right yeah government doesn't work without the queen yeah if she doesn't read out the laws mm-hmm. they don't happen there's a moment in the in again in the final episode of the second series where she's basically on mat leave yeah when she's having a difficult pregnancy and her um private secretary's up there with some royal warrants that need mm. signing you know she constitutionally there are important things the queen has to do it's yeah. not just a kind of figurehead role 
Um, and that's another interesting theme out of the out of the program, actually, the pushing at the edges of what it means from a power perspective, what it means to be queen. Yeah. Right. And the moments where she, again, probably have very heavily fictionalized moments where she's supposed to have intervened in government policy, or or put, or for example, refused to allow prime ministers to resign. Mm. These sorts of things where she actually, it's it, you know, it, it it's depicted in the Crown that the Queen has quite quite a hands-on role in British yeah. history, British political history. We will never be able to verify the sources, though, will we? No. Um, Philip Murphy, who is the head of the Institute of Commonwealth Studies, wrote a book about the monarchy and Commonwealth. And he talks about the difficulty of doing research, historical research on the monarchy. Mm. Um, one of the big problems being that f- um, freedom of information... When the Freedom of Information Act came in under Tony Blair, one, it doesn't apply to the monarchy. So you don't have... It's very difficult to get freedom of information stuff about the monarchy. But also what that actually did is stuff that... That meant some documents were reclassified under FOI because some stuff that wouldn't be made available under FOI was reclassified. And I remember him talking about the difficulty of finding out stuff about the monarchy in the National Archives, Mm. even when it's being reported in contemporary newspapers. Yeah. So, for example, the stuff about the Queen going to see um, Nkrumah is all classified, even though there is a photograph of the Queen dancing with Nkrumah on the front page of the Times. So it's this sort of hit from from a historical point of view, they're very, very difficult to get at. Why do you think that is? Is that because the monarchy is being protected or is that because they need to, the, the mystery to be kept alive? I think it's both of those things. I think it's a constitutional oddity. Um, I think Diana dying actually has a role in it because it's it's that moment where because interestingly and again the crown kind of deals with this they're not uh, they're not people who've chosen the role mm. and the role is what's important not the individuals yeah right like constitutionally um the individual people don't matter it's the role it's the role and of in particularly for the elizabeth generation i suppose yes. who have landed in the hot seat <laughs> yes it is the role of queen that is important mm. The person who is queen is unimportant. Yeah. And I guess part of what the FOI thing and, and part of the hiding documents and is doing is protecting that division. Mm. So you can find out about queen as queen. Mm. We know when she does parliamentary speech or whatever, like opens parliament, we can see that stuff. But maybe it's about the individual. I mean, I think it's also about an enormous amount of social deference. Yeah. Written. And this isn't all, I'm not saying it's necessarily a good thing. But I think that's possibly part of the justification. I think it's, that's another theme in, in The Crown, which is the deference from the population. Mm-hmm. It's very uh, clear in the first few episodes of the first season, the sort of trains travelling through mm. the UK and people are waiting at the stations, waving flags. And yeah. like the royals on board don't even really notice. I think Philip notices. Yes, He, he seems to... to be noticing a lot of things. He notices that his father-in-law is ill when yeah. no one else does. Yeah. <laughs> And stuff like that. He kind of, I suppose, becomes our, yeah, our guide. Well, they use him as an outsider figure, don't they, to yeah. for us to be able to perceive these things. Yeah. Um, and it's it's quite you know there's a there's a scene as well the last Christmas of that king's of of the. I was going to say the queen's dad's life, but he's still a king then. Um, of his life where there's people coming from the village mm, to sing yes. carols. Yeah. And it's all, you know... Feudal. People, yeah, it's quite feudal. And people know how to behave. They all mm-hmm. bow and kneel yeah. and stuff. <laughs> I mean, these days, I suppose someone will be telling you 
how to act there. You're not yeah. allowed to. Isn't that quite a famous scene in one of the in the Helen Mirren film? Yes. Or was yeah. that a film or a TV series? A uh, film, I think. But yeah, that someone is being told that it's mom, not yes. ham, yeah. ma'am. Ma'am, not ma'am. Uh, what, I mean, and that you don't turn your back on her and stuff. Yes, exactly. And and again, in The Crown, that's that's they do that with JFK, right? Oh, yeah. And they have the two yeah. private secretaries standing at the back, like, absolutely outraged because they mess everything up. They call them the wrong names. Yeah. They do the wrong things. Jackie Kennedy walks off first. Like, all of those things. And they're, like, outraged about it. They're really yeah. angry. But there's also a certain... I think there's a certain joy in them being outraged because they want Americans to get it wrong. Mm. They want to feel like Americans don't know how to behave. Yeah. Again, in, in, with the idea about deference, they have the moment with the Debs Bull, don't they, where they cancelled the Debs Bull. Yeah. So that, again, this fictional thing where the Queen meets with the journalist. Yes. The aristocratic journalist who has been criticising the monarchy. Whose name completely escapes me now. Mine too. But we'll put it in our footnotes. But they have the, <laughs> the private meeting and he has those, those those suggestions. Yeah. And they obviously, most of them... He they... suggests modernisation, basically, yes. and how she needs to look and act in order to connect with, with the younger generation. And one of the things they take on board, and again, should stress as a historian... No factual fictional, information. Yeah. Right, as far as we know, fictional. Um, <laughs> but they're getting rid of the Debs Ball. And so rather than having the traditional debutante's ball which would have been where women so to be for those of you who are not au fait with the 1950s class system um <laughs> a debutante was uh you could only be presented as a debutante's ball either if your mother had been or if someone who had been kind of brought you out mm. so um people would like desperately cast around for family friends who could take a girl to the debutante ball you're presented to the queen and then there's like a series of social events and it's often where women would find suitable husbands. Which is great because they do at the age of 18. Yeah, exactly. So you get presented at 18 and you meet sort of boys from good backgrounds and you can go and find yourself a suitable society marriage, make a suitable society marriage. Um, and this is there's actually a really good, one of the Nagayo Marsh uh, novels revolves around a murder at a kind of a coming out ball oh really which is so coming out used to be that's what it's called that's what being presented as a debutante you come out as a debutante um it's not kind of like a fabulous coming out of the closet style <laughs> uh, it's not enough glitter but there's a yeah there's a murder at a debutante's ball um but yes in the crown it depicts that moment where they have to stop doing the traditional debutantes and instead it's different people are being presented like a kind of cross-section of society yes and upper middle class people are sort yes. of in well, even, no, even, the... even less than upper middle class i oh, think really? yeah because there, there's a moment where the queen and the queen mother are standing in the window watching them come in and there's like someone's and some of it's like implied very heavily that it's new money Oh yeah, there's someone who's but at least captains of industry. No? Yeah, <laughs> but it's you know someone who's um, some sort of bar. I'm sure someone who like owns a, a, some garages or something. Okay. And this kind of you know it's yeah. definitely it's not everybody. It's not by any, but it, they're sort of horrified to see these people yeah. coming in and to think they don't. This is the thing about continuity as well. So there is there is an um, a thread thread of continuity and the fact that the queen kind of has this very unique position in British society yeah. stitching a lot of generations together because she's been mm-hmm. in place for so long now. She is quite an old woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's quite interesting but also problematic 
it's great in the series. It it's problematic yeah. in real life yeah. because we see where it starts from. We see yeah. the deference, the extremely rigid social hierarchy, mm-hmm. um, and you know what what is perceived of as being acceptable and what mm-hmm. isn't. And then we are meant to believe that this is a royal family that's completely like changed over the past few years. I mean, the, there's a thing recently, like last year, I think, when it was the uh, 20th anniversary of Diana's death, mm-hmm. um, William and Harry gave an interview in which they said that mm-hmm. they hope if, if it would have happened today, they wouldn't let two young boys walk behind the coffin of their mum. Yeah. And that that was quite a cruel thing to yeah, do yeah, yeah um and i think there's quite a lot of, there was a lot of very successful rebranding of prince charles mm-hmm. during the first few years that i lived in this country i moved here mm. in 2002 he was obviously painted as a devil mm-hmm. after 1997 and uh, seen as an unsuitable parent and all sorts of things mm-hmm. which is problematic because he is heir to the throne but also father to the heir <laughs> to mm-hmm. the throne so if he's an unsuitable parent, then mm-hmm. what are we ending up with? But I think it's they've done that very successfully mm-hmm. in a way that I think a lot of people forget that this is still... You know, you can talk about all of the prime ministers that have served under mm-hmm. Elizabeth II, mm-hmm. but that's not without issue, is it? No, I mean, it works extremely well narratively because it's a way of... You can construct a really good story mm. with a good core... Middle, you know, like you know, we were saying, like it's you wouldn't expect she it to be. She connects Churchill to exactly. Theresa May. Exactly, and <laughs> you wouldn't expect it to be a story that would tell you a lot about social change, but it does, and it does that very effectively. And obviously, so these two series, Claire Foy has been Queen, and Matt Smith has been Prince Philip, and Vanessa Kirby has been um, Princess Margaret. The next two series, so Olivia Coleman, Coleman is Queen, and Helena Bonham Carter is Princess Margaret. Um, I can't remember who's going to play Prince Philip, but this, you know, the the actually swapping out the actors, I think, is a really interesting kind of stylistic narrative device. Yeah. Um, partly, I mean, just practically, it does enable you to move through the chronology nice and quickly. You're not going to get weird things from people being aged up or anything. But it mm. also is interesting, kind of narratively, because it it splits it into three stories to three eras. Like if you had a series of history books about it, and there were three volumes. Yeah, it's like Eric Hobsbawm's. Mm. Ages, ages. Of. <laughs> well, David Kynaston's British history ones, like yeah. <laughs> that, uh, Austerity Britain, Family Britain. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting to think about how that works. Actually, where they're so they're finishing this one in 1964. That's what's just, or you know, 1963. I guess Profumo Affair. That's mm. the last series of the last episode of series two. But then they're jumping ahead a bit in the next series. They're they're jumping forwards quite a bit. Okay. Um, Charles is played by someone in his early twenties. Okay. In the next one, um, and I think I, there is a sort of a set chronology for what the series are going to be. But Thatcher definitely comes into the next the series with Olivia Coleman in because they've been talking about maybe Gillian Anderson playing Margaret Thatcher. Oh, yeah. um, so again, it's like any act of writing history. The Crown's had to pick what stories it wants to include right to yeah. go from 1947-ish to 1963-ish they've had to highlight specific moments yeah and they'll have to keep doing that mm. um i have also this has led me into a s- series of wikipedia holes <laughs> obviously because every time anything happens i just think i'm just going to check these things 
I had forgotten that uh, Prince. I forgotten. I don't know if I ever knew Prince Charles uh, proposes to someone who gets who uh, proposes to Mountbatten's daughter niece, and she turns him down because he proposes just after he's killed. Oh really? <laughs> um, so it's terrible timing. Um, but you know, these kind of funny funny is the wrong word, but little kind of human interest stories around. Yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see what gets included. Are they going to include that and and depict Charles as? You know, I'm interested to see what story they want to tell about Charles and Diana. Yeah. Is it going to be an unhappy marriage from the get-go or is it going to be something that... Yeah. How is this going to work? That would be really interesting. There's another interesting aspect that we need to mention and that's the pay gap. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm hoping that they're rectified now, right? So it transpired in the summer that Claire Foy has been paid a lot less than Matt Smith, which I think is quite interesting because, you know, for someone who doesn't watch Doctor Who, Mm -hmm. it's... I can't understand how Matt Smith could be more famous and therefore worth more money than Claire Foy, but apparently that's how yeah, that's absolutely. how it went. And she and what was sort of that story got followed up more recently, didn't it? Because that story broke and there was mm. this huge pay gap, and then it was drawn attention. And I think Netflix said, "Oh no, this is ridiculous. Of course, we're going to rectify it." And then there was an interview with Claire Foy sometime later where she said, "Well, no, actually, it hasn't been rectified yet. Mm. That it was definitely was posited that, of course, this was a silly oversight. Somehow, yeah. they just decided to pay her a lot less per episode. And she was also she had a child in between the first and second series, I think. Well, she just had a child before the first series because I read yeah. a thing about um, how she had to wear a little corsetry yeah. to pay the queen in the first series, and she said it was actually very useful because it gave her an incredibly, it made her really irritated and gave her a really kind of stiff, like a slightly grumpy expression and made her hold herself really stiffly. Yeah. And that that was actually really helpful and she kind of internalised it for the second series, although didn't have to wear the corset anymore. Well, the other thing actually that I thought was a very interesting kind of shift is she, the Queen's depicted having two babies Mm. in the second series. So we don't see her have either Charles or Anne. Um, She's got those at the beginning, but... Um, she has two children. She has Andrew and Edward. And Andrew, she has in Twilight Sleep. Oh, really? Yeah, they put her to sleep. You see her being sedated. Wow. And then pull the baby out of her. Mm-hmm. And this was a thing. This was a practice of childbirth for mm. aristocratic women in Britain for some time. And they stopped doing it because um, it can cause quite unpleasant internal injuries yeah <laughs> because you're because it wasn't they didn't it wasn't a c-section they put you to sleep and then give you like a vaginal delivery but yeah like so it can cause quite unpleasant injuries but also it um has a really really highest incidence of um uh pnd postnatal oh, really? depression because you're not going through the it, it's it, you're not in labor you're not in labor and it, it apparently was very and I and I think you know women talked about having very unpleasant kind of dreams and things mm. during this process and it being really horrible. I'm not surprised. Um, <laughs> and so when in the final episode and this is kind of used it's used narratively, isn't it, in the final episode to show how close Philip and Elizabeth have become because Philip's mm. in the room when she has the final baby, which oh, is wow. this huge kind of step forward. But she gives birth. <clears throat> she actually she's in labour and it's all very clean and speedy mm. but she she has a baby and she she gets birth and it's a re, it's another it's an interesting um the queen as like a pregnant woman mm. is quite an interesting thing to think about actually having spoken on previous episodes of this podcast about what pregnancy does to people's conceptions of you yeah 
as a professional person and yeah. the idea that you're bringing kind of messiness and the evidence of like sexual behavior into the workplace like for the queen to do that is yeah. a really interesting thing i think yeah but although part of her duty and her yes. ro- role is to produce heirs well she's got fun. an heir in the spare though the, the, the extra two children are really just for fun yes yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think that might be what we have for the crown. You have a poem. I do. I do have a poem. So um, for Mad Men, we had a really brilliant poem by Leo Alansky, which was about Mad Men itself. Um, it's still one of my favourite poems. Um, this, there aren't any poems about the crown. I would love to find a, crown, a poem about the crown. You might have to write one yourself. Um, I'd like to encourage someone else to write a poem <laughs> about the crown. Uh, but I've uh, found a, a, a brilliant poem by a poet called Ruth Stacey, called Elizabeth II. And it's a poem from the perspective of the Queen. Mm. Uh, And the first verse is, or stanza is, In today's correspondence, a poetry book detailing the lives of British queens, with a note enclosed and a question, What does it mean to be Queen? I could reply and say, This precious stone set in a silver sea, a symbol like a banner for men's love, but these are not my words. And she goes through and she says, I could say this, I could say this. And then at the end she says, Instead, I will command my secretary to write, with many thanks for the little book, etc. But to say my thoughts on queenship can only be ascertained by my actions. And I really liked it, both because it's it's a nice point, but also because I think it really fits with the kind of Claire Foy depiction of the queen and some of the things that come out in The Crown. These ideas about what it means to... I think one of the very interesting, actually quite explicit things that's dealt with is what it means to perform the role of monarch. Yeah. And the distinction between the Queen as person and the Queen as mm. monarch, and particularly that moment when the Queen has written a letter by her mother, right, which says you have to set aside Elizabeth and you're just mm. the Queen from now on. So I thought that was a good point for this. Yes, excellent. So that's a recommendation for you to watch if you're uh, listening to this over the Christmas holiday or mm-hmm. just before and you need something instead of just mulled wine or yes. something to accompany your mulled wine we have more recommendations we have more recommendations so obviously we recommend something every episode of this podcast and we're trying to think of something Christmassy. <laughs> uh when we rec- when we did mad men we recommended specific episodes of mad men mm. but there's fewer to pick from from the crown so yes and i think they maybe should be watched in chronology in sequence, more than yeah than mad men needs to so we thought what else brings us both pleasure <laughs> And puts us in a. What else would put us in a in a in a good mood and, and make us happy? And we thought that this this episode, what we're going to recommend is Reese Witherspoon films. Yeah, because they're quite enjoyable. Who would not want Reese Witherspoon is a member of a golden generation of female actors? I think mm, rom com um, specialists. Yes, and her career trajectory is really interesting because she has one. She's always been picked quite interesting films. But also because now she has, um, you know, really taken upon it upon herself to be a producer and to create roles for women, and particularly roles for older women. Yeah. And so, for example, Big Little Lies, mm-hmm. which she starred in, but also executive produced, having read the book and enjoyed it. You know, she's like one of these women in Hollywood who is trying to actively shift the landscape. Yeah. For women who are older than the age of 25 and so therefore can't play anyone's love interest yeah um so i think she's i really like her and we're not going to recommend legally blonde because we're sort of assuming that everyone's watched it clearly everyone who listens to tomorrow never knows podcast has watched (laughs) legally blonde legally blonde is a feminist classic (laughs) there is no way that you could listen to this podcast and not have read it i refuse to believe that anyone who's listened to this has not read it or watched it even so 
I've uh, I've got some vintage Reese Witherspoon mm-hmm. films, so maybe I should start. I couldn't actually choose. I really love Walk the Line, which I suppose mm-hmm. is not really. She's not. She's not the main character, but she does such a good job. It's she the does. Johnny Cash biopic with um, yep. uh, Joaquin Phoenix. Yeah. And I think what she does really well is show just the importance of June Carter Cash yes. and the fact that June Carter Cash wrote Ring of Fire. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's a very, it's a really good job to write a woman into history, isn't it? Yeah, and that she's her own individual. She mm-hmm. doesn't, she doesn't need. Johnny Cash, <laughs> he desperately needs her, mm-hmm. uh, but she's she's all right on her own. Yeah, um, and yeah, she does that really well. Um, another one is Election, mm. which is from like two thousand, I think. I think so. Which is, yeah. So it's a really early Reese Witherspoon film, and it's about I don't know, slightly um, blinkered mm-hmm. high school student running for class president in mm-hmm. the most house of cards fashion yeah 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 <laughs> it's it's uh much matthew broderick is her yes tutor who's kind of running this election for this pupils and then realizes that he's been completely outmaneuvered by yeah. this 16 year old girl it's also it's a really interesting mediation on female ambition isn't it yeah. the depiction of female ambition yeah and and what it means how brutal you can be as a woman so that's an early reese with a spring film and a mid-career mm-hmm. Yeah, and I have a recent one to yeah. recommend. So I recently found myself watching on Netflix the film Home Again, which is a, a very recent Wiz Witherspoon film in the last couple of years. Um, and I, again, would absolutely stand by this as a, as a feminist classic. Um, partly because basically the plot um, is Reese Witherspoon moves in with three young men in order to teach her slightly useless husband a lesson. So her, she separates from her partner and she moves with her children to the west coast of America and ends up living with these three kind of men in their early 20s. Mm. So that's just in itself an excellent premise for a film. But what I particularly like about it is that, and I'm not giving away any key plot details here, but essentially these three men end up performing an enormous amount of kind of practical and emotional labour for her. So she, <laughs> they make her a website, one of them fixes all of her kitchen cabinets, another one of them does a lot of childcare for her. And I just think it's a really, you know, practical feminist vision that sort of older women should have large numbers of 20 or something men to move into their house and just deal with all of the practical issues they have. <laughs> I, I think that's great. So <laughs> I, uh, I enjoyed that very much. That's great. So, and that's on Netflix, so that's quite that's easy on to Netflix, find. I think, that's easy to find. Unfortunately, both the films I've recommended, you're going to have to find some other place. I but... assume you can probably get DVDs of them quite cheaply. Yeah, yeah, they'll be around somewhere. It's Reese Witherspoon, she's worth it. Yes. Um, so that's it for this year. Yeah. Actually, we'll be back with one episode in the spring that we have planned. Mm-hmm. And uh, then there will be more once I return from parental leave. Yeah. But until then, that's it from TNK Pod. You can stay updated with um, us on Twitter mm-hmm. at TNK Pod. Our website is tomorrowneverknowspod.com. Yep. We have a donation system if you want to help us with the running costs yep. of Absolutely. keeping us with microphones and hosting servers and all sorts of things. And uh, do subscribe to our newsletter, um, our footnotes. 
for this episode and for future episodes and get them straight to your inbox um and please subscribe to the podcast wherever you get to podcasts and you'll get our next episode when that pops up and if you do listen to the podcast and enjoy it we would really appreciate it if you uh took the time to rate and review us on itunes yeah because great it makes be a nice christmas gift. it would be a lovely christmas gift <laughs> for tomorrow never know so merry christmas merry christmas and, and happy we'll, new year happy new year and we'll see you in the spring bye bye